everyone. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez. And my name is Jen Tosleib. And today we have Professor Veeam Hauschman on the podcast to talk with us about white collar, corporate, and atrocity crimes. Vim is Chair and Professor of Criminology at Freie Universiteit Amsterdam. He is co-editor and chief of the Journal of Crime, Law, and Social Change a member of the board of the European Working Group on Organizational Crime, UROC, of the European Society of Criminology, and co-chair of the Division of White Collar Crime and Corporate Crime of the American Society of Criminology. His research focuses on the field of white collar crime, corporate crime, and organized crime. Thank you so much for joining us today, Vim. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind introduction. Yeah, I hope I didn't butcher those names too badly. Excellent pronunciation, and I also apologize for my Dutch accent. (laughs) (laughs) No apologies needed here. All right, so a brief overview of today's episode. We're going to start off with some broad questions on white collar and corporate crime. From there, we're going to move into a book chapter that's authored by Vim on the involvement of corporations in atrocity crimes. And then last but not least, we're going to move into some differences between crime and punishment in the Netherlands versus the United States. So we're going to start off with, as usual, this big question, big umbrella question that's sometimes difficult to kind of wrap like a precise definition around. But when I think of white collar crime and Jose, I don't know about you, but my mind tends to instantly go to a really well-known TV show in the United States called White Collar with Matt Bomber. Yeah. So very limited knowledge on this topic. Then can you provide kind of an overview of what white collar and corporate crime are and what makes them unique or distinct from each other? Sure, I will. And I think American criminology, well, is a big help in in answering this big question because the concept of white-collar crime was coined by the American sociologist, criminologist, you would say, I think nowadays, Edwin Sutherland, whom you may know as also the author of the differential association theory. He coined this concept in 1939 when he was giving a presidential address to the American Sociological Association, and in a way also accusing his fellow sociologists, criminologists of studying mostly blue-collar crimes, so the the crimes committed by lower people in society, lower social classes, workers, and so on, street crime. While the elite, the social elite, can also do harm, but often this is not criminalized, at least not not in penal law. So he was using this term white-collar crime, which of course refers to the dress of these types of offenders, not having the blue referring, of course, to the shop floor in the factory and the white collar, uh, the, the, the nice business suit uh, of the manager or the director of, of the company. And Sutherland, well, actually, he gave several descriptions of white collar crime, but the definition that is mostly referred to is definition as follows, that white collar crime uh, is crime committed by persons of respectability and a high social status committed in the course of, very interesting, his occupation. Uh, That's the way he described white-collar crime. Sometimes people say, well, if there was a Nobel Prize for criminology, Sutherland should have received it because of uh, giving us this notion, this concept of white-collar crime. But he was also criticized by not giving a very clear definition. 
Uh, so after his landmark book in 1949 about the crimes of the 80 largest corporations in, in the United States of America, other students followed up and his work and made the distinction between, on the one hand, individual white-collar crimes in which these sorts of offenders, let's say business managers, use their position uh, for self-enrichment, often at the detriment of the, of the organization, for their own benefit, and on the other hand, crimes committed by business managers in trying to achieve corporate goals eh, for the benefit of the corporation itself. And the latter one has been coined later on as, as corporate crime. Eh? So crime committed, yeah, some people say by corporations, that's a big question. That's the big question. Could we see corporations as, as offenders, as actors, organizations as actors, or people acting on behalf as agents of the corporation for the benefit of the corporation. And so corporate crime, for me, is a type of white-collar crime. Okay, cool. And by the way, if I may add, many criminologists think that Sutherland was the first criminologist pointing at white-collar crime, but actually it was a Dutch criminologist, the first professor of criminology in the Netherlands, Willem Bommer, who made the distinction in his dissertation his PhD thesis in 1906 on economic crimes, he made the distinction between crime in the streets and crime in the suites. And so that was the way he coined elite crime, what, what Sutherland later on called white-collar crime. Wow. So being Dutch, that's something cool. that I always like to add when having <laughs> a foreign audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that you talked about you know, and, and Sutherland brought this up, how we, as criminologists, we tend to focus on, like, the blue-collar stuff. And so we've learned, or I've learned, that, you know, like, and I think that's pretty true of not just criminology, but the social sciences in general, where we tend to, what they call studying down instead of studying up. But studying up, sort of studying, like, these affluent, maybe upper-class individuals, that presents some challenges that you kind of don't see with sort of like the blue collar populations, right? Um, can, you, do you, can you tell us a little bit about some of like the challenges of doing white collar crime research? The research, yeah. Yeah, well, if you ask any uh, random member of society and ask them, and what does a criminal look like? Eh? To ask them to paint a picture or description, give a description of a criminal. Eh? They won't paint a picture of a white-collar offender, eh? because in, in many ways the white-collar offender differs from ordinary offenders or offenders of street crimes, you could say. And that's also something that makes it difficult to study. It's not always that clear that these acts qualify as crimes. There's a high level of moral and often also legal ambiguity, not paying your taxes, is that something eh, that is very common in, in certain parts of society and, and yes. something that, that is expected of you or that people think it's okay or, or is it a crime? It's, it's often not that clear. And also for that reason, and it differs a bit from time to time and from country to country, but generally speaking, I would say that if you look at criminal policymaking, fighting white-collar crime does not have the highest priority, especially being true for the United States during the previous administration. And that affects data, yeah? because if there's not much law enforcement, there's not much reported crime, so there's not much data to work with. And, well, doing interviews with high-level managers, for instance, and talking about their crimes, 
maybe a bit more difficult to interviewing offenders of street crime about their criminal decision-making process. So I think, yeah, studying white-collar crime comes with a number of challenges. So you mentioned like not paying taxes and these types of crimes. Can you provide a few more examples of what types of crimes really fall under white-collar and corporate crime? Actually, that's quite difficult to answer because there have been debates in criminology on what actually is white-collar crime and how to define it. So the two positions, you could say, there's the position taken by Sutherland, so Sutherland's followers, they define white-collar crime based on the, the characteristics of the offender, the high social status. This is what we call an offense-based definition of white-collar crime. And the point that Sutherland was trying to make, because he referred to crime, but with crime, he did not only mean criminal offenses, because one of the points he was trying to make that harmful behavior of the social elite is not criminalized by criminal law. If it's regulated at all, harmful behavior of corporations, of business, that would be with using civil law, eh? or especially in continental Europe, eh? we, we say administrative law. Eh? So outside penal or criminal law. Eh? So with crime, he also meant the violations of those types of law. Eh? If they, those violations could be sanctioned, then he would include this in his definition of crime. So in that case, the crimes, white-collar crimes, will often be the violations of such specific business regulation, regulation to prevent harms to the, the environment, harms to workers, occupational health and safety regulation, for instance, harms to consumers, and so on. The first large empirical research project in the United States of America done in the 1970s, the so-called Yield Project, was done on the basis of a sample of, I think, about 1,200 offenders who were convicted for eight types of fraud, basically eight types of fraud. And one of the things that the researchers did was to create like an offender profile. What do these offenders look like? And I think the title of one of their books eh, that came out of this project says it all because that's the, type, the title of the book is Crimes of the Middle Classes. Eh? So that's different from the traditional stereotype of white-collar offender being very social elite, chief executive officer of a large corporation. Eh, these researchers said, well, if we take such a sample of convicted white-collar offenders, it's mostly middle classes, and therefore they also found different types of fraud, a wire fraud, certain types of embezzlement, which would be different from the types of violations that corporate managers would commit eh, on behalf of their corporation. Eh, so it, it's a fairly wide range of, of crimes, I guess. And it also differs when you take the offender-based approach to white-collar crime or you take the offense-based approach of white-collar crime. But most crimes, if you want to use labels, I think, especially if you look at the prosecution of white-collar crime, most crimes will fall into the categories of either being fraud, some type of fraud, or corruption. Okay. Okay, so, and at least, you know, Jen and I's experience, we, and I think this is true for a lot of criminology students, is we learn criminological theory, but we usually learn, you know, like the social control, differential association, general strain. Does white-collar crime fit under these perspectives or does it require 
a different way of thinking about it theory-wise? I think there are many ways to study and also to try to explain and look at causes of, of white-collar crime. And it's not only criminologists doing this. It's also from management sciences and organizational sciences, organizational sociology, social psychology, and each type of scientist will bring their own theories and try to apply this to white-collar crime. So that means as criminologists, we can often learn a lot from, for instance, business administration academics uh, or organizational sociologists, because they look at this organizational factor uh, that is typical for white-collar crime, and which also to a certain extent sets it apart from, from street crime. But if you are a criminologist, if you look at textbooks, the one also that I'm using for my graduate course on white-collar crime, the most criminological textbooks on white-collar crime, there will be a chapter in which the traditional general theories of criminology uh, will be applied to white-collar crime. So indeed, strain theory, social control theory, self-control theory, neutralization techniques, and so on. And usually they work to a certain extent. And one of the leading scholars in this field is Sally Simpson. Uh, she's my big hero. And she once made the critical point. She had some criticism towards this approach of just applying general criminological theories. He calls this the add white-collar crime and stir method. Uh, so okay. to a certain, on a certain abstract level, it will always kind of work uh, applying these theories. And some do better than others, I think, especially string theory, but not the macro version by Robert Martin himself, but mm. more the individualized version by, for instance, Robert Agnew. They work well because, of course, strain is about deprivation, but not absolute, but, but relative deprivation. So mm -hmm. especially in the field of business, there can be a situation in which you could say, well, certain general goals apply yeah, or, or having economic success we're in a, our company is in a competitive market and it's a general prediction that in the end, uh, only a couple of companies will prevail. It's a market mm -hmm. of mergers and so on, companies taking over each other. And then as a company, you have the choice, are we going to be prey or predator? Mm -hmm. And then the cultural value in a way in business is, yeah, well, you, and this is also what the shareholders like to hear, is we will be the, the predator, right? So we will be leading company in this branch of industry or this market. So that's like a general goal for every company in the sense of the strength theory. But the means to achieve this goal will not be equally distributed within the market. So I think a very good case in which you can use strength theory as an explanation, for instance, is the diesel emission fraud case by Volkswagen. You may have heard about this. It has been a large case in the United States as well as in, in Europe, especially in Germany. I think this month the criminal trials have started in, in Germany, prosecuting the highest level managers of Volkswagen, a car manufacturing company. Volkswagen wanted to enter the U.S. market in order to be the largest car manufacturer in the world. But they had stiff competition in the U.S., in the American market, especially by cheaper and cleaner Asian cars. So. But Volkswagen was not in a very good position to win this competition with building electric engines. So they had invested heavily in, in the diesel engine, mm. which was originally from trucks, right? So there was this ambition to create a clean, that would be their mean, eh? mean their way to achieve this goal of being the biggest car manufacturer in the world, was producing a clean, environmental-friendly 
diesel engine and they mm. could not do it. Yeah. So what is in the strength theory, the explanation for crime, crime is innovation. If you want to achieve the goals, but you do not have the means, you come up with alternative means as a way of innovation. But these alternative means are illegitimate means. And this is a perfect example. They came up with the invention, the innovation of using a cheat device to, to have a piece of software, cheating diesel emissions of the car when it's in a controlled condition, when these emissions are measured. So this is really very much a story that is in line with a strain theory of an explanation of crime. So I think this goes for many criminological theories, but to a certain extent, you can apply them to white-collar crime, even, for instance, social control theory. Often it is said that of those theories, a social control theory by Hirschi about the social bonds is not a good explanation for white-collar crime because then the general assumption is, well, compared to ordinary street offenders, the social bonds of white-collar offenders are very good. Okay, but that's not a fair comparison. If you want to understand the contribution of those social bonds or the lack of those social bonds to their behavior, to the commission of their crimes, you have to compare them with their law-abiding peers. And in a research project in the Netherlands, we have done so, and the outcome was that the white-collar offenders that we, we studied in the Netherlands, when we compared them to a control group, a matched control group of peers as the same type of business, same type of position, and so on, but not being prosecuted for a white-collar offense, the white-collar offenders were at lesser social bonds. So again, to a certain extent, this theory seemed to work because it seemed to contribute to the explanation of the crimes committed by these business managers. Right. Are there, because I've never taken a class on white-collar crime, they're like very distinct, which has always made me kind of sad because I've always been interested peripherally in white-collar crime and just have never learned about it. Are there specific theories devoted to white-collar crime, or do most people just use these more traditional theories in criminology? Yeah, I think if you, if you look at white-collar crime causes within criminology programs, it's mostly the application test of these general okay. theories to white-collar crime. Some work better, huh, so that there will be a focus. Yeah. For instance, I think, again, neutralization technique theory has been developed by Sykes and Matza in the 1950s uh, to understand juvenile delinquency. But they work very well in understanding white-collar crime because white-collar offenders generally do not have a deviant self-image. In In committing their crimes, they want to uphold also for themselves the image of being a respectable citizen, respectable business manager, and therefore they need these neutralization techniques the most to be Mm -hmm. able to maintain that non-deviant self-image. I think, and interesting, of course, it was Sutherland who came up with the differential association theory, Mm -hmm. but he was studying Mm -hmm. white-collar crime. So this is a theory that works very well for explaining white-collar crime in deviant subcultures within branches of industry and corporations. So I think if you would say that there are specific theories in understanding white-collar crime, actually they are interjections of explanations and theories from other academic fields into criminology in order to understand white-collar crime. So, for instance, to give one example, I think a very important factor in the causation or the explanation of white-collar crime, and especially corporate crime, is the notion of corporate culture, business culture. And in organizational sociology, management sciences, and so on, various tools have been developed and theories have been developed about what is a corporate culture and how does corporate culture work. 
and criminologists in applying those tools, validated instruments that have been developed to measure corporate culture. And we as corporate crime criminologists, white collar crime criminologists have applied that to find a correlation between, for instance, an ethical business culture and the level of rule breaking or white collar offending within that particular corporation. So I think that would be new to, to criminology, but actually we take it from another discipline because it, it works well in understanding yeah. white collar crime when we look at the role of the organization as an explanatory factor. Okay, so now we want to move a little bit about sort of policing and punishment. Is white collar crime difficult to police? And if so, why is it challenging sort of to catch white-collar offenders? Well, the first reason to assume why it's difficult is that there is so little policing, right? And so little prosecution. So this has something to do with policy priorities and and politics and so on. But it's also, indeed, because it's hard to do. Policing and prosecuting white-collar crime is, is more difficult than policing or prosecuting street crime for a number of reasons. It has to do something with the nature of the offender and the nature of the offense. So the nature of the offender, they have it in hand, a respectable business, seemingly respectable businessman that does not fit well into the general image of a criminal. So this yeah, appearance of legitimacy is creating a barrier, I think, for giving it law enforcement priority. When you look at the offenses, many of these offenses are characterized when you compare them with ordinary crimes with a a certain level of moral and legal ambiguity. It's not always that clear that it's criminal. So often it's not a violation of the Ten Commandments. Eh? In legal theory, we often make an, a distinction between mala and say crimes and mala mm. prohibited crimes. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this the distinct, distinction, but traditional crimes mala in say. You do not really have to check the law, the penal code, to realize that you cannot steal, you cannot rape, you cannot kill. Everybody knows that. But this business regulation, the things that you should do to prevent harm to the environment or harm to your workers or the integrity of your financial accounting, it's it's not always that clear. And it's the context. It is committed in the context of legitimate organizational business practices. So how to distinguish the illegitimate practice from the the legitimate practice? That's often very hard to do. It also has something to do with the burden of proof. And establishing mentoria, the guilty mind. Often corporations do not intend to do harm or to commit a crime. They just want to make money eh? and make a profit. And especially for corporate crime, if you look at the violation of these business regulations, the most traditional crimes are crimes of commission. You should not commit burglary. Eh? You should not commit rape. That's doing something that is illegal, but it's a certain action. If you look at the business regulation, it's, it's most of that regulation is demanding a certain type of action by the corporation. They have to put in place certain equipment to prevent environmental pollution discharges, to protect the safety of workers, to come up with financial accounting and reporting. So compliance with these regulations takes effort. So many corporate crimes are not crimes of commission, they are crimes of omission. But that's also more difficult to police and to prove that you did not do what you should have done instead of that you can prove that you committed a legal act, an illegal act. So those, I think, are a number of reasons. And then, well, of course, 
especially when you take the offense-based approach, eh, the, the crimes of the middle classes mm -hmm. of white-collar crime, it's, it's not the case that every white-collar offender is very rich. But if you look, you take the offender-based definition, high social status, and especially with corporate crime, then you talk about powerful offenders mm -hmm. who have power and who have the money to hire the, the best defense lawyers. So that's also a reason why it's difficult, I guess, for public prosecutors to successfully take on these cases and, and prosecute CEOs or large corporations. Yeah, so many reasons. <laughs> yeah, there's only a few. Right? There's, a, yeah. there's a long list of even more reasons why it's difficult. And therefore, in most countries, you see less policing less prosecution of yeah. white-collar crime compared to street crime. Yeah. All right. So let's start to slowly move into the chapter we're going to be talking about today. And you've alluded or mentioned some of these things before, but what are some of the consequences of white-collar and corporate crime for you know, the employees of the businesses, the actual consumers of products from the businesses, or even just the community where the business is located their physical location or where their activities are happening. Yeah, that also connects with what we just discussed because yeah. another reason why there's this level of moral or legal ambiguity is because victimization of white-collar crime is less clear. So it's difficult to compare uh, the sort of victimization, the damage that white-collar crime is doing compared to, to street crime, but the attempts that have been made they all have the same outcome that they assess that harms of white forward crime exceed harms of street crime, but they're less visible. And there are a number of reasons for that, I guess. Often there's a time space gap between a decision that is made in a corporate boardroom in Amsterdam or somewhere in the United States of America mm. and the harms as a result of that decision that occur years later in another country at the other side of the world. And this is the victimization of corporate crime, but the causal connection with the offending is not that clear. And often also there is collective victimizations. So victims may not know that they are the victim of fraud because it's a successful fraud and they will never know. Or think of price fixing. Many people are victimized a little because of an illegal cartel we pay a little too much for a certain product, but we do not know, and it's only little. But in total, it's a lot. It's damaging economic conditions. And finally, especially with some financial crimes, victims also feel responsible because they're not only victim to, of the corporation or the offender, they're also victim of their own greed. Mm -hmm. And so I think those are a number of reasons why the victimization and the harms are, are, are less clear. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when you bring up the people feeling the effect of white-collar crime might not even be in the same country as the corporation. It just reminded me of, I don't know if you are familiar with the Nestle infant formula scandal that was happening in Africa. Like, I can't remember the exact details, but yeah, like Nestle is not based out of Africa, but, it, yeah. you know, it was it was African mothers that... Like their infants were dying because of negligence. Yeah. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, I think that's a, a real interesting point to bring up that it may not and be I think the this direct is community. Especially true, right, because we're moving to that chapter, mm -hmm. especially true for the, the type of corporate crime that I'm trying to study in this particular research project, that compared to other types of corporate crime, the harms are even more externalized right, to other parts of the world. Yeah. Right. 
Okay, then well, I think that's a perfect segue to get into your chapter. So we're going to talk about this chapter. It was authored by our guest, Vim, and his co-authors, Suzanne Karstedt and Annika Van Var. It's called The Involvement of Corporations in Atrocity Crimes, and it is set to be published in the Oxford Handbook on Atrocity Crimes on January 22nd, 2022. And this chapter provides an overview of the involvement of corporations in atrocity crimes. And the term involvement means that a link between the company, its activities, and the commission of atrocity crimes can be explicitly identified. In the chapter, Vim and his co-authors first define the features of corporate involvement in atrocity crimes. Second, they provide an empirical overview of the involvement of corporations in different types of crimes since 1945 focusing on the processes and mechanisms of that type of involvement. And finally, they provide an in-depth analysis of two historical cases of the involvement of corporations in atrocity crimes. So with that being said, Vim, our first question is, what did you hope to accomplish in this book chapter? Like, what was the end goal when you decided to write this chapter? Yeah, it's twofold. I wanted to introduce a new type of perpetrator to the field of study of atrocity crimes. And I wanted to introduce a new type of crime to the field of the study, the criminological study of corporate crime. So uh, we just discussed the study of white corporate crime in criminology is not that new since Sutherland introduced the term uh, more than 80 years ago, we've been studying this. But the study of atrocity crimes or international crimes is fairly new which is quite shocking, actually, that these are the most harmful, the most heinous mm-hmm. sorts of crime, but criminology have left that aside until a bit more than a decade ago. And I wanted to join this new field of studying atrocity crimes, but by, because in the field of atrocity crimes, when we do, they talk about perpetrators and study perpetrators, it's mostly military, either being soldiers doing the killing or the raping or the generals giving the orders. It will be politicians creating conflict or having dictatorial rule and so on. But you would not think of business people and corporations as perpetrators of atrocity crimes. So that was my aim of introducing this new type of perpetrator and this new type of corporate crime. All right. So then what are atrocity crimes and how are you relating them to corporate crime? Yeah. Well, like I said, I think that the term atrocity crime is used, I guess, especially you being native speakers, you know what atrocities are. So I think we use the term atrocity crime for the most serious and the most harmful human rights violations that that, that affect individual victims as well as communities, regions, or even nation states. And what they have in common, I guess, if you look at them, of course, when you try to define crime, there's always this struggle. Are we going to take a legal approach? Do we look at the law to define the crime or do we take a more sociological approach? But from a legal perspective, I think what these crimes have in common is that they're firstly criminalized by the international community. They're so heinous, so harmful, but often state actors are perpetrators and therefore the international community, especially, for instance, after the First World War and the Second World War, have defined and and criminalized these crimes in international treaties, which boiled down into the Rome Statute in 1995, which is the basis of the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and that includes crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide. Okay. And so in the, in the book chapter, you go through a couple of case studies, but 
just for our listeners, can you just briefly provide like two or three real world examples of atrocity crime that's happened over the last 50 to 100 years? Yeah, sure. Well, there's so many. Yeah. So that it's, it's hard to pick. But perhaps the best way to start is by looking at the crimes by the Nazi, Nazi regime during the Second World War in, in, in Germany. Of course, then you think of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. the genocide on the Jews and the destruction camps. Well, we all see these Nazi leaders who stood trial after the Second World War in Nuremberg, the famous Nuremberg trials. These were Mm -hmm. Nazi leaders, political leaders, but also military leaders being held responsible for these crimes. But what not many people know were a series of trials in Nuremberg. And actually, if you ever go to Germany on, on vacation, for instance, you can visit the building. It was a local court until six years ago. And so it's, it's all there. But part of these proceedings were trials against former business leaders in Germany, former leaders, business managers of, for instance, IG Farben, the largest company in the world at that time, a chemical company, which built a huge factory next to the destruction camp of Auschwitz, in which they used slave labor to produce artificial chemical fuels. But for instance, if you look at the gas chambers, as you may know, victims were killed by using Zyklon B gas. Well, that gas was produced, of course, by a company. So this is, I think, the first case, but also the first context in Nuremberg trials in which this type of perpetratorship, this type of perpetrator was acknowledged eh, because not only the Nazi leaders and military leaders were prosecuted, but also business leaders. If you look at, well, contemporary cases, especially after the Arab Spring and the uprisings that we had in the Middle East and the civil war following in Libya and in Syria, a number of companies have now been accused and prosecutions have been been started up, for instance, in, in France against IT companies developing and selling a surveillance software, for instance, to the regime of Gaddafi, the former leader of Libya. And this software was originally meant to, officially meant to track down political, of the terrorists, to track down terrorists. But of course, the definition of a terrorist by Gaddafi and his regime were political opponents. And we have mm-hmm. similar cases in Syria of similar surveillance software being produced, used by the Assad regime to arrest people. You can imagine what happened to those, those people. And these would qualify as crimes against humanity or perhaps war crimes. And there are a number of interesting U.S. cases as well, if you look at the occupation in Iraq. Mm -hmm. 36% of the reported abuses in Abu Ghraib prison were committed by personnel of two American companies and not military personnel. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that we pointed out a little earlier was that one of the goals was to outline the extent and nature of corporate involvement in atrocity crimes. And so to do this, you use data from your own comprehensive database, the Transnational Corporations and Human Rights Violations or Transcore HRV dataset, which includes 103 cases of corporate involvement in atrocity crimes, including crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide from World War II, from World War II to 2019. And since, so our question is, since 1945, how has corporate involvement in atrocity crimes changed over time and place? 
Yeah, actually, the analysis in the chapter was based on the first batch of a little over 100 cases. After that, we kept on looking for cases. And now we have, I think now we're at 171 cases, which mm-hmm. corporations have been accused because that's the selection criterion when a corporation have been, mm-hmm. has been accused of being involved in, in such crimes, atrocity crimes, we included in the database and analyzed the case further. And yeah, the starting date, in a way, because this, from a legal point of view, this issue has been defined at the Nuremberg trials. So we take on cases since the Nuremberg trials. So the cases involving German companies during the Second World War were the first cases. And if you look in the decades after that, in a way, these cases follow the context in which these atrocity crimes are committed. And you could say roughly, yeah, there are two types of context. It could be a combination as well. It's either situations of armed conflict in a country, for instance, civil war, mm-hmm. and corporations are involved in that and operate in that country. Or the second type of context is authoritarian rule, so dictators and corporations being involved in the crimes of those dictators and their regimes. And so if you follow history in the 1970s, it would be Latin America, the military dictatorships in, in Argentina, for instance, and, and the corporations being involved in the abduction of workers, of union members, and the, dis- the torture and disappearance of those union members and the killing, of course, which would be crimes against humanity. The 1990s, civil wars in Africa, in Liberia, Sierra Leone, the well-known case of the Blood Diamonds, for instance, in the movie mm-hmm. with Leonardo DiCaprio, yep. and diamond businesses being involved in the trade of those Blood Diamonds as well. The armed conflict in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We have Colton and Cobalt in every mobile phone and and tablet. Mm -hmm. And these are conflict commodities related to these atrocity crimes in the harvesting of Mm -hmm. those commodities. And then, yeah, we end up in the Middle East in those uprisings after the the Arab Spring. And I should not forget uh, cases that we also have in, in Asia, the same type of context. For instance, the military rule in Myanmar. And Western companies uh, being involved in joint ventures with state companies ruled by the military in the extraction of fossil fuels in Myanmar, for instance. So have atrocity crimes increased over time or have they stayed about the same over this time period that you're looking at? That's a good question. And that's, for me, a difficult question to answer. I should refer to the work of my, my colleague, Susan Karstedt, because I'm the white collar crime criminologist in, the, okay. in this project. And she's the atrocity crime criminologist. And she okay. set up a database measuring conflicts and atrocities that have been committed. I think, in a way, you would see a rise. But the question, of course, is, are there more atrocities committed in history, a recent history, Or is this more like a a registration effect? Because it was only after these international treaties that we have defined these crimes. I often, in my class, I have a special course on this particular topic. I often start with the example of the first modern corporation in the world. And I like to give this example often because I have many international students in this course. And we always have a fight, we, the Dutch, with the British of of what was the first modern company in the world. The British would say, well, that would be the British East India Trading Company, because that was founded, I think, in 1600. And the Dutch would say, well, it's the Dutch East Indies Trading Company, which was founded in 1602. The difference with the British one is that the Dutch one was the first with having tradable shares. 
so one of the elements of a modern corporation. But this first modern corporation of the world, the Dutch East Indies Trading Company, was also the first company being involved in a genocide. Because in the archipelago of the Banda Islands, in nowadays Indonesia, they had a control. This company just decided to get rid of the local population, which was basically a genocide. But of course, in 1602, we did not have the international treaties yeah. that define those crimes yet. Right. Okay, so... Also in this book chapter, you examined differences between like the physical location of the corporations where they were physically at, and then also the location of the atrocity crime activity that was occurring. And in doing so, you point out that there, which I thought was really interesting, that there are no reported cases of corporate involvement in atrocity crime activity in North America, but many of the corporations are actually located physically in North America. And so this kind of seems like a big paradox between the location of the company and the actual activity. So do you think that's due to like politics, the fact that U.S. corporations don't really operate domestically a lot or like locations of power or something else? Partly, partly. There may be a bias in the data, I should say first. Like activist lawyers, human rights groups, bringing forward, exposing these cases. And they come from, mostly come from the same countries as these corporations. So these would be Western-based human rights groups, NGOs, exposing the harmful conduct of Western companies in developing mm-hmm. nations. So we do have a few companies that are based in Asia, for instance, in China, for instance, but not so many. But that does not necessarily mean that Western companies are more evil than Asian companies, it yeah. might reflect this bias eh, of the NGOs working on these cases. That, so that's the first remark. Secondly, is it politics? Hmm, partly. I think in general, you could observe that the governments of developing nations are not that eager to regulate the harms that their corporate nationals are doing in other countries. They regulate the harms that corporations are doing in their own countries. So if you look at the first textbook behind me on corporate crime by Tenard and Jaeger, 1980, studying the crimes of America's, this time, 500 largest corporations, it's all national. So they make a distinction between six types of corporate crime. It's always a challenge to remember all six, but environmental offenses, labor offenses, occupational safety and so on, manufacturing offenses, unfair trade practices administrative offenses, and that's five, and then forgetting one. What they have in common is there is not a category human rights offenses or human rights abuses, because these harms are on a national level. American companies harming the environment in the United States of America, harming American workers, harming American consumers, harming the American taxpayer, and so on. So the, the type of corporate crime that I'm studying is not in that textbook. So criminologists and you would say national regulators do have a focus on corporate crime in a national context, but they're not that willing to regulate the harms that these corporations are doing abroad because that may harm the economic interests of those corporations and therefore national economy. That could be a political reason. But I don't think that's the only case. It's also related to the the nature of the business of these Mm -hmm. companies and where the business is found. Because we looked at the types of industry, the branches of industry, the types of companies that are involved in those cases. And it differs a lot. 
So uh, some companies, certain branches of industry, run a higher risk of becoming involved in these atrocity crimes than companies from other branches of industry. So that's not so much politics, it's, it's related to the business. And the most prevalent industry is extractive industries. So the extraction of fossil fuels, of mm -hmm. ores, of gems, they are often found in countries that are not very well to do, developing nations. Right. And of course, the big question is, is there a relationship between these countries being rich in national resources and also suffering from high levels of corruption, poverty, mm -hmm. being non-democratic, often having conflicts and, and so on. And this is what in academia is referred to as the resource curse. So it appears okay. that, that there is a connection, but yeah. the resources found, the national resources found in those countries, uh, think of Cobalt and Colton in the, in, the, in the DRC, is bringing the multinational companies from Europe, from America, and I'm sure from China as well, to those countries to harvest those uh, commodities. And therefore, yeah. they become involved in the local situation and the crimes committed by the people with whom they need to do business. Yeah. Okay, so crime against humanity were the most common type of corporate involvement in atrocity crime in your data. 87% of all corporations in the data were involved in this type of atrocity crime, which is really high. Seems very at, least high. I, at least I thought it was. Can you describe some of the types of crimes that fit under this crime against humanity sort of banner and how common are some of these crimes in the 103 cases that were in your data at the time? Yeah, then I have to refer to some statistics from the analysis indeed. So it was 87%, I think, of the cases that the crimes would qualify as, as crimes against humanity. But if you look at the definition of those atrocity crimes, those international crimes, for instance, in the Rome Statute, these are very broad. They're like categories of crimes, indeed. So if you look at crimes against humanity, these could be many forms of underlying crime, you could say. So it could be murder, so unlawful killing of civilians, for instance. It could be a torture, it could be enslavement, it could be deportation of the forcible transfer of, of population, imprisonment or, or other forms of severe deprivations of physical liberty and so on. And even the crime of apartheid that belongs to this category of crimes against humanity. If you look at the cases, so we, we, we look when corporations are accused of being involved in crimes against humanity, what type of crimes would that be? And I think most prevalent, let me have a look at my table. I think most prevalent, number one is murder. Mm. And so corporations being accused in the killing of civilians. To give just one example, oil companies operating in Africa, oil production comes with environmental pollution. So, for instance, in Nigeria, the country of Nigeria, Western Africa, there have been uprisings, protests by local people. Goni people living in the Niger Delta against the environmental pollution. Well, the corporations, this was a nuisance to the corporations, so they asked the local rulers and the police. There's a special police force in Nigeria with the sole task of protecting the interests, the facilities of the oil companies. It's the best paid unit of the Nigerian police force, and they have a nickname with the local population because of the way they operate, and the nickname is Kill and Go. So in the interest of those corporations, these state agents, these security forces, they kill people, keep people that are involved in these protests. So and then this case would be qualified as the corporation being involved in the murder of those people. But I think second is torture. And I gave the example of Abu Ghraib 
prison and the mm-hmm. abuses committed, employees of companies being involved in those abuses. These things do not seem like activities corporations would want to be involved in. <laughs> but I mean, there must be some kind of profit. Is it just all like money that, you know, they're trying to get more and more money and they just happen to become involved in atrocity crimes? Well, I think that's typical for corporate crime. In a way, it all yeah, boils okay. down to money, you could say. But it's not always pure profit maximization as the motive to become involved. Because indeed, a reputable business company would not want to be associated with crime in general. Also not yeah. fraud or corruption, but especially not something evil as war crimes or crimes against humanity, murder, and so on. So... In the majority of cases, we see indirect forms of involvement. It's quite rare that corporate agents, personnel of corporations, is directly being involved, doing the killing or doing the torture. The rare example Mm -hmm. I just gave with Abu Ghraib prison, for instance. Although when working conditions could qualify as enslavement, then of course that's also a form of direct perpetratorship by the corporation. But but in most cases they're indirectly involved. Somebody else is doing the killing, doing the torture, mm-hmm. and corporations are, for instance, facilitating those crimes. And is it always about the money? And in a way, I often make a distinction between two types of situations I see in the cases. Sometimes the company being involved is the result of a lack of due diligence, human rights due diligence, not proper risk assessment. That may be the result of greed. It's, it's also attractive. A new copper field is found in a certain country and then there's competition and, well, the companies are eager to go there and, and start operating. And then they're not too critical with whoever is ruling the area in which the copper field is located. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that's one type of explanation. Another one, for instance, Shell in Nigeria. Shell, one of the, the big oil companies, Dutch, yeah. half Dutch, half, half British, has been accused of being involved in these types of crime in Nigeria. Well, Shell started operating in Nigeria in the 1950s when it was still a British colony. But Nigeria has changed around them, but they were already there. They did not go into profit, but they were already in the country and the political conditions changed. And then the question is, when do we leave? And also leave and say goodbye to all the investments that we made. So in both cases, it has something to do with money and profit, but in different ways. Okay. All right. Well, shall we kind of shift to our last kind of quick mini topic then? So here we're shifting the discussion, taking advantage of the fact that we have a guest on here who's from the Netherlands. And we just want to get a sense of how the Netherlands kind of compares to the United States on a very basic level in terms of crime and policy. So our first set of two questions for you is kind of what are or are delinquency rates in the United States similar to those in the Netherlands? Yeah. They differ. They differ. I'm hesitating a bit because what we have in common is that we're Western developed nations. Eh? Yeah. So perhaps we're more alike when we compare ourselves to, to other types of nations. But if you just compare crime rates in the Netherlands to the US, it's different. If you look, for instance, of course, in criminology, we teach there are two ways to measure uh, crime. On the one hand, reported crime, police statistics, and the other hand, surveys, victimization mm-hmm. surveys. Well, if you look at crime rates according to reported crime, and of course you should present those figures in a way that you can can compare, so Mm -hmm. not absolute figures because the Netherlands is much more, we only have like 60 million inhabitants, but if you look at the number of reported crimes per 100,000 inhabitants, 
In 2019, for the US, that was like 47 reported crimes per 100,000. And in the Netherlands, it's 27. And what both countries have in common, but that goes for all Western developed nations, eh, is that crime rates have been dropping since like 2002, 2005. That's similar. But still, the crime rate is higher. In the US, if you look at reported crime, if you look at crime surveys, well, that's a bit of a sad story. We had a very interesting instrument, the International Crime and Victim Survey. But there were several rounds that started in the 90s. I think the last one was in 2010, maybe. But after that, we did not have a new round of the International Crime and Victim Survey, making it hard to make a comparison. But if you look at the 2000 data, I had a peak. Then the interesting thing is they make categories. And then the Netherlands were part of the group of countries of which over 24% of the respondents reported being victimized by crime, while the United States, together with, for instance, Canada and, and Scotland and mm. France, belonged to the group in which between 20 and 24% of respondents reported okay. being victimized by crime. I think it would be a bit different, perhaps maybe today, because the crime drop started earlier in the United States than, than in the Netherlands. And, of course, our most common form of property crime is bike theft. Right? So if you take out bike theft, I think crime rates are not that high in the Netherlands. If you ever been in the Netherlands, you know we bike a lot. Yep. So a lot of bikes are stolen, but that's not a very serious form of crime. Yeah. Isn't it common for, at least in Amsterdam, for like college students to take bikes and throw them into like the river and whatnot into the canals yeah. yeah well actually it changed a bit but when i was a student in amsterdam you were used to the fact that you, you, you your bike would be stolen all the time okay and they would be stolen by junkies drug addicts and you would mm -hmm. go to the law faculty of the university of amsterdam we have two two universities i'm with the other one the freie but the university of amsterdam in the city mm -hmm. center in the red, near the red light district yeah. There would be a line of junkies on the street with stolen bikes. And then for like 10 euros, you would buy a bike. <laughs> of course, that's a crime by itself, right? Right. But that used to be very common. But Interesting. Uh, that changed. So I don't okay. think my students nowadays buy stolen bikes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So our last question for you is about incarceration. So the United States currently has an incarceration rate of 698 per 100,000 at the end of 2019, when we focus mm -hmm. only on prisons, the total prison population was just over 1.4 million people. And so it, it's, I don't know how common knowledge it is, but if you, when you look at some of like the reporting, it'll usually say that the U.S. locks up more people per capita than any other nation. How does the Netherlands compare to the U.S. in, in terms of incarceration? We have 54 per 100,000. That's such so a that's difference. A, that's quite a difference, right? Yeah. 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 Ooh. Yeah, actually, we're, we're often we're the, the opposite example. Well, American criminology, also because of the language, of course, is, is quite dominant. So my students will be studying American textbooks and criminology, and they will learn about crime rates in, in, in the States. Often they know more about crime and, and incarceration rates in the States mm -hmm. than, than, 
than in, in the Netherlands. But this is a well-known example that the U.S. has such a unique high incarceration rate, perhaps the highest in the world. Often the Netherlands is, is used as an example of the opposite. In Europe mm-hmm. now we're the third lowest, I think. And we have okay. always been low because we have a very mild penal climate in the Netherlands. And, well, that's interesting for cultural comparison. You know, why why mm-hmm. do punitive culture differs so much between two, yeah. at first instance, comparable countries, Western right. developed nations? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I was not expecting the difference to be, what is it, like 11 times lower? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I think that there are a couple of explanations. If you look at the, the prison population, half of the population is serving a one-month sentence. And so it's, it, those are really short sentences also. Yeah. One month, half of them. We have more out-of-court sentencing, especially in the last decade, especially fines. We have more alternatives to prison sentences, especially community service. And the latest development is more court-ordered mediation, like restorative right. justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are the explanations that have been given for the, the low rate of incarceration in the Netherlands nowadays. Very interesting. Need to learn something from the Netherlands, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, come over. Yeah. I'll take you on a tour to That'd see cool. a Dutch prison. Yeah. Because Dutch prisons also look a bit different, I think, from American prisons. But oh, that's only because do. I know about American prisons of the, because of the movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us or any other comments on you know, corporate crime, white collar crime or crime in the Netherlands? Not really. You came up with a lot and, and very good questions. So it was a, a really a pleasure to answer them and, and to elaborate a bit. So, yeah, a crash course, I would say, on, on white-collar crime. Those are also the topics eh, that, that I discuss in my white-collar crime course, but that would be the same, I think, in a, in a white-collar crime course in an American university. So I think we covered yeah. most of the stuff that I would like to cover. Yeah, and we'll find out soon because we are actually talking to Sally Simpson in a few weeks. Ah, well, wow. uh, okay. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll be sure to ask her some of these white-collar crime questions. Yeah, what we what we did not discuss, we could have discussed that, but then this is a reason also to, to leave this for Sally, because one of the questions that we actually did not discuss were the offender characteristics. Mm-hmm. And especially the role of gender is a very interesting topic. So yeah, you've heard, probably have heard of the glass ceiling, and that's changing, I think, in the United States, in America, but also in Europe. Also, as a, as a result of the, the, the 2008 credit crunch, which was economic crisis, which was, look at the great movie, The Big Short, was attributed to, to masculine risk-taking cultures in financial mm-hmm. industry. Many European countries, and I'm not sure about states, adopted new legislation, making it mm-hmm. mandatory to have a certain quotum of female board members, like 40% of, of the board of large corporations should be female. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that will break and change masculine business culture, which leads to taking excessive risks, which leads to economic crisis, and so on. Well, the big question is, of course, what will happen with white-collar crime? Well, we have more female business managers. There are two hypotheses. One is the exposure. Once women get exposed to the same types of criminogenic conditions as male business managers, they will start committing white-collar crime as well. 
-hmm. And the other is the vulnerability hypothesis. No, women are different. And if we have female business managers, we will have less white collar crime. And this is something that Sally is studying. And not much research has been done, but I would place my money on the second option. Yeah. Okay. We'll be sure to ask that question because, yeah, that's definitely interesting. And to know what she thinks as well, as far as the hypotheses go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Vim. It was an absolute pleasure to to speak with you. And I know we, we talked about your chapter that's coming out in a few months in late January, but is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Anything else that we should be keeping, be on the lookout for? The only thing perhaps I could refer to, so many textbooks, because here's white collar <laughs> crime, Sutherland, corporate crime. But this is the latest that came out, European white collar crime, by me and a couple of colleagues of the European Working Group. So although there are many similarities, and especially on the general level in which we discussed white collar crime today for this podcast, I think American European white collar crime is alike, but it's also interesting to, to study the differences. And that's why we came up with this new book. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm all for, you know, cross-national comparative work, studying the differences with other countries yeah. and, and the United States. Where can people find you, Vim? Do you, we email, Twitter, Google Scholar, that sort of stuff? Well, if you ask me that question, I realize that I'm pretty old-fashioned. <laughs> so I'm not very active on social media. By the way, I would not like to support Facebook for reasons that have to do with my topic of study, I guess. Yep. <laughs> so I'm old-fashioned. You can send me an email. Thanks. Okay, perfect. And we will provide your email. I'm easy to find. So anyone who'd like to get in touch is most welcome. I will reply to your email. Great. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you again. We really enjoyed talking to you about this. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And nice to meet you as well. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.